Good morning, good morning. Uh, if you happen to have some seats uh, in the middle, I guess, and you're not saving for somebody, as we sit down, if you could scoot in just a little bit so people can sneak in, that would be very helpful. Appreciate it. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. I'm one of the pastors of the church. Uh, we, as life goes when you're doing mobile, sometimes you have technical difficulties. Uh, so I kind of might sound like I'm preaching out of a tin can. So can you hear me all the way in the back? Adam, you got me? Okay, thank you. Okay, uh, I will preach like George Whitfield, and if the can doesn't work out, that's fine. Um, that's the way it goes. Uh, Jesus is king, not the speaker, right? Uh, let me pray for us, and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, king Jesus, this is your day. You're not afraid of speakers. You're not afraid of technical things not working out. You're not afraid of anything because you're the king of everything. You're the king of everything. Our lives, we want our lives more and more to be formed in the reality that you are God who came in as, as a man and took on flesh and dwelt among us. Who was made like us in every way and knew no sin to save us. And that you didn't just come to forgive us for sins and you did and you did so, so abundantly. But that you came to give us life and to give us new hearts, and to fill us with the Holy Spirit, and for our lives to be about the joy that we have in the reality of who you are. Lord, we need a rescuer. I make a bad king in my life. I need you to be the king in my life. I need your help every day. I need your help to get through this sermon. And as I pray, as we look at Micah, and we see a people's tendency to forget who you are and who they are, that we would be reminded of who you are and who we are and who we are because of the gospel and because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, this is your thing. Whatever this is me, I just forget it. Like I pray we'd forget it. it just, it's dust. But, but the things that are eternal, Holy Spirit, you'd make sing in our hearts. Help us to see Jesus today. God, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen. Uh, if you would go with me to Micah, there we go. If you go with me to Micah chapter 1, uh, last week I preached one verse and said, because I'm preaching one verse, next week I will have to preach two chapters, so we're there. So we've got a lot of work to do, but I think, uh, I think we'll do it all right. Um, today we're looking at the reality of Jesus as our Redeemer King, and you're saying, but you just asked me to turn to an Old Testament book. Jesus doesn't show up uh, until the New Testament. Uh, it is my heart and my desire as we study Micah and the rest of the Old Testament that we would see what Jesus was trying to show people on the road to Emmaus, that the whole of the Old Testament is about Jesus. The whole of the Old Testament was the gospel reality that Jesus, the Savior, was coming, has come, saves sinners, and gives life. And he gives life in abundance and the good good news of the gospel is that we're not stuck in the false religion of trying to earn the love of God, but that we know the love of God because Jesus Christ has come to save us from ourselves. And the good news that we have this rescuer, right? We're all stuck in a pit. We're stuck in a pit, and every other option is you build the way out of your own pit. I don't need to build a way out of the pit of my life. I need Jesus to come and rescue me from myself. I need Jesus to come get me out of the incurable junk of my own life. And that's what we're going to see here today in Micah. So starting in chapter 1, starting in verse 2, it says this, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord be witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Now, Micah, 8th century prophet. The people of God 
are busy worshiping the pretend gods of all the people around them. Uh, But the amazing thing here that God starts with from the beginning, if you are an 8th century Israelite, or or if you're from Judah, because there are two, you have to kind of keep that in mind as we dig in. Israel's in the north, Judah's in the south, ten tribes in the north, two tribes in the south. Why is this important? Because the context of these minor prophets, guys like Micah, this is the stuff that when you don't understand it, you dig in in your personal reading. You're like, I don't even understand what's going on here. And my deepest desire when we study Micah is God's word becomes more accessible to you. That you can better study and understand the Bible for yourself. And you can better, when you're digging into a book like Micah, see Jesus all over it. Okay? So Israel's in the north. Judah's in the south. Ten tribes in the north. Two tribes in the south. And everything has gone crazy. Everything is guns and roses all over the place. Like, it is not going well for anybody, and everything is nuts. And that's, that's the context in which we find ourselves in. Now, God comes on the scene and says, I have to have a conversation with y'all about these things. I'm going to have a conversation about you, about your guns and roses lifestyle. Uh, now, what's amazing here is that, that um, all the other people who live around would have seen the world formed this way. Well, the Egyptians worship the God of the Egyptians, and the Assyrians worship the God of the Assyrians, or the gods of the Assyrians, and the Hebrews, they worship that weird God of the Hebrews, but they would have seen every, all these gods as being at least somewhat possibly real, and just sort of all kind of in this cosmic plane. But what's clear from here and everywhere else in the Bible, Jesus, the God of the Bible, God is not one of many options. There is one God of everything, and he's not just the God of Christians, he's the God of the universe. And he starts by saying, hey... I need to talk to everybody. Now, he's going to single in on Judah and Jerusalem and Israel and Samaria and all these places. But he starts by saying, I need to have a conversation with everybody. And that's not necessarily a good day at first. But we'll keep going. Uh, And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. And this is for the transgression of Jacob. Jacob, right? The God of the Bible often identifies himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What's Jacob's other name? Israel. Who's he talking to right now? Israel, right? And, for the, uh, and this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. And what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? Samaria is the capital city. So he's coming after the leaders. Everything's jacked up and messed up. The people of God were given ways to lead and to live. And they involved a society only being as good as that society takes care of the weakest of those in the society. That society only being as, as godly and as responding to the reality of God by showing the grace to others that God had shown to them. He saved them out of their destitute state. And so how were they to treat people in a destitute state? To love them, to care for them, to, to, to take care of their physical needs and their spiritual needs. And the people, as we'll see in a few verses here, we're just spending all their time figuring out how to rip those people off. God is not happy when you rip little kids off. God is not happy when you whip, rip off uh, women and children. He's not impressed by it, and he's coming to have a conversation with the leaders who are allowing it to happen. Therefore, oh, pardon me, and what is the high place of Judah? Now, a uh, high place, sometimes that refers to a high elevation, but it almost always refers to a pagan center of worship. Now, everything is really, 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 really messed up in Israel. The number one way to become king in Israel is you kill the guy in front of you, right? That's Israel. Judah is pretty messed up, but not as messed up as Israel. And it seems likely that one of the most, one of the most common things that's happening in Judah is they're saying, well, yeah, we're kind of creeps, but the guys in, up, up north, 
those guys are real creeps. And so they begin to justify their sin. And, and, and I think it's always important that we make sure that we kind of land this down in our own lives. We want to be careful that we don't say, well, you know, that guy's worldly selfish and, and does a bunch of things that are against the scriptures. And I'm doing things that are worldly and selfish and, and not taking Jesus seriously about loving people. But that guy's way worse than I am. And as long as that guy's worse than I am, I don't have to do anything about it. If that guy repents, maybe I'll think about it. It suddenly becomes about them and me, not me and Jesus. Uh, John, I think it's 21. Peter is getting restored by Jesus. And Jesus says, but Peter, you're going to live a faithful life and you're going to die the death of a martyr. This is the total remix. And Peter's response to Jesus is not, oh, thank God, I totally, totally ditched you on the cross and, and, and I'm going to run a faithful life. Oh, praise the Lord. He says, what about John? I'm going to die a horrible death. What's, what's going to happen to John? And John has his little note. And Jesus, because Jesus says, well, if I want him to stay alive till I return, that's my business, not yours. What about John? Peter, we're not talking about John. We're talking about me and you, not you and John. Now, of course, this is where John makes a little parenthetical note. Not that Jesus said that I was going to live till he returned, but that he said if that's what he wants to do, that's what he can do because he's God. Uh, I love John's little, little note there. By the way, <laughs> when I die, it's okay. Don't forget. Uh, but we can have this mentality that says, well, what about that guy? That guy is doing it. As long as that guy is doing it, I'm fine. Well, I might do this, but he does it worse. I'm ripping people off. I mean, I'm a used car salesman, but Jimmy John down the street, that guy knows how to rip some people off with the used car salesman stuff. It's not about John. It's about you, and it's about Jesus, and it's about getting everything out of the way between you and your relationship with Jesus and living in the forgiveness that he's afforded you through his cross. Yeah, love that guy. Take the plank out of your eye and deal with the speck in his, but deal with you and God first. Okay. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. Remember, Micah is a farm boy. He's using farm analogies. And I will pour down her stones into the valley, uh, or God's speaking to him sort of through these kind of analogies, and uncover her foundations and her carved images. Interestingly enough, it seems that there's no actual word for idol in the Bible it's, or pretend God. It's always, it's always refers to like carved stuff, little g gods. It's usually in the Bible. And of course, there's no capitals in Hebrew, so it's... They're putting it there so you get the, the nuance. They're saying, hey, they're carved images. Hey, those pretend gods they're worshiping, those things they're finding their value and purpose and worth and identity in life, the pretend gods they're worshiping, the carved images, and her carved images shall be eaten to pieces, and all her wages be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste, for from a, the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Very complicated little verse. In fact, one of those weird minor prophet verses where you're like, Micah, if you could just tell me what the heck you're talking about, I would really appreciate a little commentary so I know what you even mean here. Uh, let me unpack it, I think, a little bit. So again, we have to kind of put ourselves, not without like, uh, we don't want to like over-nerd out on the history, but we need the context. And, and the reality is the kings in Israel in particular, who he's addressing, uh, they have been in a pattern, and the pattern has been to pay the fee to the Assyrians so the Assyrians will protect them from scary, scary people. And in return, one of the things that has to happen is that to become what's called a, I think it's called a vassal, like to, to be, their, they're their liege, they have these cool like Highlander words, liege and vassal, and, and, and the guy in Assyria is the liege, the liege lord, and the vassal's in, in Israel, and you're like, what are you talking about? It means he paid him money, so if somebody came to beat them up, the, the Assyrian king would come and beat them up, right? But part of the deal was you had to set up pretend gods. You had to set up Assyrian pretend gods. And in fact, the king 
uh, in Judah before Hezekiah ends up even closing the temple, and they just start worshiping these pretend gods. So what they do is they sell God out because they're afraid that God can't take care of them. So they start doing worldly things. And again, this can sound liege lord. It sounds all a little Highlander, and everyone's like, Highlander. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't Google it or Netflix it. I will try and explain it in a clearer, less nerdy way next time. Um, It's weird stuff. Like, two people understand what I'm talking about, and and I realized that was a mistake. At least Adam's tracking with me. Um, So so they, they pay the money. And then they set up these pretend gods. And, and, and we can see that it seems distant and far, but the reality is as Christians, we have a tendency to compromise. We can say, well, I know what the Bible says, and I know how Jesus has called me to live, but if I'm going to get ahead in the world, I need to do it the way the world does it. Wait a second. I thought we were talking about pretend gods and stuff. I, I, let me put it this way. So you know that working seven days a week is going to kill your family. And you know working uh, 18 hours a day is going to wreck your marriage. And you make these ideas in your head and you say, well, maybe if, I, maybe if I just do it for a while, right? Or, well, you know, I know it's like, it's not technically like cheating the IRS, but I have this loophole I can use and everybody else in my industry uses it so that I can get ahead. And if I don't do it, I won't be competitive. If I don't do the things that the world is doing, I won't be competitive in the world, You're using the world's ways, not God's. God's people say, I trust Jesus who's king, and I will follow him and not compromise, and I will trust him either way. Because an idol, I mean, mean, my background is in all kinds of weird stuff, right? So I used to have a little purple statue I got in Asia that I bowed down to and worshipped in my home. Legitimate idolatry that is now destroyed and Jesus has saved me from. But if we only think in these contexts, we miss that we're willing to put our families on the idol uh, uh, and die for the idol of work. Uh, we're willing to put our, 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 our time on the idol that, that's really God's time. I just got to do these things so people will respect me. Or I got I to sell out to these people so they're like me. We want to be accepted. You want to be accepted. You want people to like you. You want people to think well of you. But are you willing to put that on the altar, whatever's on the altar? I want my boss to like me, so I'm going to put my family on the altar. Uh, I, want these, 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 I want these moms to read my fancy mom blog. And so I'll, I'll put my kids uh, in the room in front of the TV a little too long so I can get that perfect sentence. And, and I always think this is funny because... Hey, you might be a mom blog person, or you might not. I don't know. I'm just pulling out of my hat, right? Like, I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying we can do anything to get that idol to serve us. And it's not just a little statue. And you got your own stuff you got a war against. And you got your own stuff you got to fight against. But the reoccurring theme of the Bible is we don't do it the world's way. We do it Jesus's way. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Changes our whole context. We come into the world as servants, not as people who are trying to get the upper hand. We come into the world as people who are here to love and serve and pour ourselves out for others. And frankly, everything in our society is saying, hey man, it's king of the mountain, and you got to get on top. And you you got to do whatever you can to get on top of that mountain. It doesn't matter who you hurt. An idol is anything we find our meaning, purpose, and identity from other than Jesus. And I think there's an echo here. 
Because all of these things, when we find that from anything other than Jesus, is spiritual infidelity. There's a kind of spiritual infidelity at our work, and that's what he's getting at in these verses. And you hear the echo. There's an echo here, if you know your Bible. There's an echo here from uh, Genesis 3, when he says to Adam, from the dust you came, and from the dust you will return. Right? From the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and for a fee of a prostitute they shall return. What he's saying is all these things that I or you make more important than Jesus are dust. They're worthless. They're empty. They're vacuous. They never will fulfill. You are built for joy. You are built to enjoy and worship and know the God of the universe. If you are a Christian, you have been saved to glorify God by enjoying him forever, by responding to the wonder. I mean, we're just saying how great thou art, and the voices are just coming up, thundering up together, right? How great thou art. How great is it? We'll never run out. If you make it your aim to enjoy that reality of Jesus, you will never run out of joy. You will never run out of things to think about, oh, man, I'm going to think about the reality that, that he came as a human being. He, came, he was made like me in every way. You just think about those things. You literally have nothing in your life in the midst of struggle or temptation that Jesus cannot relate to. You can empathize. God, the God of the universe came to empathize with you in your struggle. So, hey, you might be going through some junk that nobody else in the room has ever even heard of. You might be going through a struggle that no one else has ever dealt with. And that doesn't mean that we can't walk with you. It just means you might be alone in that. But you're not alone in that because he was tempted in every way but knew no sin. He is made like his brothers so that he can be a faithful high priest. You might feel alone, but Jesus came and lived as a man so that you don't have to be. Chew on that for a while. Just chew on it. You know what I mean? There's joy there. There's joy and a passion for Jesus and a response to his gospel. And it's a free response. Okay, verse 8. Did I mention I have two chapters to preach? Uh, verse 8, For this I will lament and wail. Now Micah's responding to this reality. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked or barefoot. I will make lamentation like the jackals and the mourning like the ostriches. For, uh, for her wound is incurable. And it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Okay, two things we've got to see here. One, Micah has the proper response. Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when you realize, I'm broken and I'm jacked up and I need help. That is the greatest moment in any person's life when they realize how much they need a savior, how much you need to be rescued. When you hit rock bottom, uh, there's nothing weirder than being in that rock bottom moment where you're like, my life cannot actually get any worse than it already is. And in that moment, God in his grace shines the light and the redemption of Jesus. And somehow in that darkest, hardest, horriblest moment of your life, God reaches down and snatches you up and saves you from yourself and gives you life. That's amazing. That's how God works. The cross is the darkest moment in human history. The only innocent man who ever lived is tried as a criminal and killed. And in that, washes you and I clean from all of our sin. He dies to give you life. 
He came to rescue you and in this darkest, most horrible thing does so. And in his resurrection, we share in his life and get to live a life with actual meaning and purpose and fulfillment so dark and so bright all at the same time. Right? The Beatitudes continue, of course. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You're blessed when you understand you're broken and you're jacked up and you need some help. Blessed are the meek. We don't use that word ever, by the way. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Uh, Meek, think, think a kind of gentleness and a kind of humility. And that gentleness and humility comes from the reality that in that moment, in the first verse, you understand who God is and who you are. In the second verse, all of a sudden, that's bad news at first, right? Like, that's God in his holiness and perfection. And I am messed up and jacked up, and how could I ever come before him? And all of a sudden I realize I can't come before him, but that Jesus Christ saves me for myself, cleans me up, and I didn't do anything to earn his love. I didn't do anything to earn my place in the kingdom. But Jesus came and rescued me to himself for his glory and for my joy. And all of a sudden I have humbleness, because if that is true, if that is reality, if I didn't do anything to make myself right with God, but received everything from God as he made me right with himself, Oh, A, that's liberating. Because all of a sudden, everything I have is just a gift. Everything I'm walking in, that's his, right? I can't take credit for anything. I can't take credit for my marriage. I can't take credit for my family. I can't take credit for my ministry. I can't take credit for my job. I can't take credit for breathing. I can't take credit for breathing. It's all his. And the humility that comes along with that. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Screw Tape Letters, great definition of humility. Uh, Humility is being able to look at a cathedral someone built and being just as stoked and excited about said cathedral if you had built it or someone else had. Being willing to be just as blown away and non-competitive and and dogpile and and king of the mountain about it. Well, that guy did it. I got to build a better thing than him. But looking at it and saying, man, that thing's amazing. You don't look at how other people are making this up. You're like, man, that guy is the evangelist dude. He told 10 people about Jesus last year, and we baptized all of them. And I told 15, and no one got saved. But you don't look at his ministry and say, I got to beat him. You look at his ministry, and you rejoice. Because God's work, because you have humility. You know it all belongs to Jesus, and we're in this together, and it ultimately belongs to Jesus. There's humility. There's meekness. So Micah has a right approach. almost lost my notes. Micah has the right approach. Oh, man, this is going to go poorly. And we see this in Jeremiah 18, which is so helpful for understanding the minor prophets. God promises that all these warnings, all these things, I'm going to do this. He always says, and if you repent, I'll relent. So when the Ninevites in Jonah hear God say, I am going to destroy your city, and they like start tearing their clothes and freaking out and making the cows fast, no joke. Make the cows fast. Don't let them eat. It's all going to go poorly for us. We must repent. God says, okay, I'm going to spare the city. The whole city turns to him and responds to this truth. God is holy. I'm not. I need help. I'm repenting. I'm turning. And he relents. Now, here's the other thing I think we need to see in these little verses. This is the one that has kind of like um, haunted me this weekend. It's just been plaguing me this weekend. Plaguing, that's the wrong word. Haunted's the right word. Plaguing, it sounds negative, but this is actually really positive. For her wound is incurable. So all the things we're about to rip through here in a second is incurable. Do you think that when you got saved, you got saved out of an incurable state? Or you got saved because, you know, it was really the right thing to do. You know, Jesus seems like a right way to get me out of my own problems and my own mess and my own junk. And it seems like a good step to living a better life. 
He'll free me from my addictions. He'll free me from whatever. Or do you realize, man, I stood in a place helpless, lost, and uncurable. That there was nothing in myself that could turn me to God. Do I understand that I sat uncurable? And the fact that I'm a Christian today is a miracle. The fact that you're a Christian today, you were uncurable. And God is a miracle worker who cures the uncurable, loves the unlovable, saves the unsavable. You're unsavable. I can't stand, I can talk here till I'm blue in the face and tell you Jesus saves sinners and I can save no one. You've got friends who don't know Jesus and you think I gotta be smart and I gotta be clever and I gotta be creative and somehow I gotta save them. Wrong. Jesus saves sinners, not you. You're the mailman. You're the mailman. That's a good job. Tell them the truth about Jesus. But it's not on your shoulders whether or not you save them or not. Stop trying to be smarter or clever or, or, or slip something under the, or if we just serve a little more or do this a little more, then they'll just see we're good people and they'll meet Jesus. They'll see you're good people and ask you what yoga studio you go to. Tell them the truth. Love them. Be humble. Be kind. Don't be rude. Be cool about it. Answer hard questions. But Jesus saves sinners. Do you believe Jesus saved you or you saved yourself? Jesus. But how quickly, friends, church, people of God, how quickly do we slip into something else? How quickly do we move into these self-salvation projects? If I just read my Bible more and told more people about Jesus and got in another community group and another Bible study and I made sure I was at church every Sunday, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da, then God will love me, then God will be happy with me, then I'll be a mature Christian. Friends, be free of it. That's not why he saved you. That's false. That's false religion. Yeah, he saved you to come in here and be with God's people. But we come here because he saved us, and we're coming together with the saved people of God to celebrate the cross, to celebrate the resurrection. Why do I want to be here? Not so God will give me a gold star. I want to be here because I want to be with you, and I want to hear somebody, uh, even though I have to listen to myself talk, right? I want to hear when Brian or, or Eric or Joe preaches the truth that Jesus saves sinners because I need it in my soul. And so do you. You can't earn his love. You can't earn his love. And you're loved. You can't earn his forgiveness and your forgiveness. You're uncurable and he's cured you. You're unsavable and he's saved you. Praise the Lord. This is the gospel. And we ought to be so careful that we don't turn that into, that's the beginning and then the rest is your work. Yeah, we want to be obedient. We want to respond. We want to follow Jesus. We want to, we want to fight to have a passionate life in him. But we need to understand it's from a new heart and from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in our lives and a dynamic synergy with us and God as we get after Jesus seeing him more. For our wound is incurable. Okay, verse 10. Tell it not in Gath. Now, this is important because this is a quote from 2 Samuel chapter... That was louder than I thought it was going to be. From 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20. What happens in that chapter? What happens in that verse? David hears that his best friend, Jonathan, and Saul, the guy who had been the king, are dead. They've been killed in battle. And his response is mourning. Now, typically, when the people of God think about David... They think about this champion and this hero, and they identify themselves with him. And so when they do that, they think, yay, David, we're like David, we're awesome. This is the David and Goliath uh, negative paradigm, right? When you preach David and Goliath, uh, a little boy comes out, 
throws a rock at a giant. Now you guys need to go out and crush the giants in your life. Be like David and crush the giants in your life. Rather, You're like the Israelites who needed to be saved by God. You're like everybody else who is scared. And Jesus is David. He comes out and kills the giant. He's the one who kills the giants in your life. We can't miss, by the way, when you say that, though, that David was an actual little boy who actually trusted God. And it's ours to trust God, right? But, but first and foremost, it's about God. God, God, God. Not you, 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 you. Be free from it. Nothing worse than me. I have to see myself in the mirror every day. I want more of Jesus and less of me, to be just really candid with you. I want Jesus. I want the gospel. I don't want to be thinking about me. I don't want to, want to be thinking about my face. I want to be thinking about Jesus and his word and the truth of the gospel and loving him and loving others. But anyways, tell it not in Gath. is a direct quote from 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 20. Weep not at all in Bethel Araf. Roll yourselves in dust. Pass on your way. So he's, these are all in the imperative. He's telling you, this should be your response to the fact that God says he's not happy with your idolatry. Which, of course, isn't actually their response, by the way. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Saphir, uh, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Za'an do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel. And so he's moving from Samaria geographically, from Samaria to the Shephelah Mountains, and then into Jerusalem. That's what, he's, that's what he's doing here. And if you've never been like me, I've never been. I have to look at an atlas to figure this stuff out. Uh, but it's helpful to understand he's coming in closer and closer to Jerusalem. What's in Jerusalem? The temple the center of the worship of God. Uh, For the inhabitants of Morath will anxiously await anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. We gotta stop and look at that one real quick. So Deuteronomy 17 has instructions for the king. The king's not to go to Egypt to get many horses. He's not to build an army that's too big. He's not to have too much gold. And he's not to take for himself many wives. He's to take the book of the law, the Torah, the five books of the, your first five books in your Bible. He's to have them written down. And he's to read them and memorize them and com- commit them to his heart. Now, what does it mean beginning of sin then? Solomon, who dies in 922, is the reason why there's two kingdoms. I have to keep going. There's some in the north and some in the south. Some in the north and some in the south. We're trying to track with that because Solomon was an idiot. Read Ecclesiastes. The guy's a fool, right? And his foolishness was he went by the way of the world. He did get for himself many horses and chairs and did amass for himself much gold. And instead of trusting in God, he trusted in what he could see. And instead of trusting in God, he went with the ways of the world. And what happens? He loves money and possessions and his many wives bring in many, many pretend gods. He walks in the ways of the world instead of trusting God and everything falls apart. It was the beginning of sin. The whole reason Micah's happening in, you know, seven, we're probably in like seven, we're before 722, but in and around there, that's like 200 years. 200 years of damage he did by worshiping pretend gods and doing the things in the way of the world. It can cause damage. It can have massive ramifications in the rest of your life when you're running after the things of the world. Solomon broke some stuff. Um, He broke some stuff. Um, Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Morash and Gath, Moresheth, Gath, The house of Exav shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of uh, Meshath, Mesh, Mesh, Marshetha. Hebrew place names are hard to pronounce. The glory of Israel. 
You're supposed to say them quickly and with confidence and then move on. Um, Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle for they shall go into the exile. Now this means uh, what was common, a common mourning thing was you, you cut some hair off the top of your head. He's saying be like an eagle or be like a vulture and just shave it all off because you should be really, really, really bummed out right now. But then he kind of brings why, the why of it all here. In chapter two, verse one, okay, speed chapter. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because uh, it is in the power of their hand. So he's saying, y'all go to bed thinking about who you're going to be a crook to tomorrow, who you're going to rip off, and the nasty things that you're going to do. And as soon as the sun comes up, you get out of bed and get to your wickedness. That's what he's saying about the people of God. Uh, They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them away, and oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. So here's the crazy stuff. You want to talk about crazy justice in the Bible, crazy justice in the ways of God. In the Torah, there are clear rules. They say things like, if your neighbor has to sell his field to you because he doesn't have any money, seven years later, you got to give it back to him. That doesn't make any sense, any sense to someone living in Seattle in 2014. So I bought the house, and seven years later, I just give it back to him? Yep, that's the deal. He gets his house forever. Because God's not about stuff, he's about people. What they're probably doing, they're probably not honoring that. They're taking people's stuff and not giving it back. They're not honoring what's called the year of Jubilee, as we see in the Torah. And you shall, uh, from which you cannot remove, oh, uh, there we go. Uh, Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, against this family I am devising disaster for which you cannot remove your necks. God is a defender of the weak and the helpless. B-T dub. And you shall not walk haughtily. Uh, Work that one into a sentence at work tomorrow, by the way. means proud. Uh, For it will be the time of disaster. In the day they shall take up a taunt song against you. My... uh, Canadian brother-in-law loves hockey. This is what happens at hockey when you lose. They sing songs against you. They don't just sing victory songs. They sing songs against you and moan bitterly and say, we are utterly ruined. He changes, he changes the portion of my people. Again, they're, they're moving property lines probably. One of the old tricky things you'd do if you wanted to steal somebody's land, every day you'd kind of walk out when no one was looking and you'd pick up one of the stones that marked where the land was, take a couple steps, put it back down, go back to your house. It's moving a property line the, the old-fashioned way. Um, it was nasty and it was rude and God didn't like it. Uh, to an apostate, he lots our fields. The Assyrians are coming, BTW. I said BTW once already. Now I've said it three times. There we go. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of God, meaning you're going to have a representative in with the people of God because of the, the horrible ways you've rejected him. You reject him, he's rejecting you. Uh, verse 6. Do not preach, thus they preach. One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So here's what's happening. This is important. The other preachers are telling Micah and probably his buddies, like Isaiah, stop it. Stop telling people to stop ripping people off. Stop telling people if they don't knock it off, the Assyrians are coming. Stop telling them that they're sinning and start saying that everything's just okay. That's what they need to hear. They need to hear that everything is just okay. But hear what he says. Should this be said, O house of Jacob, has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Is not the truth that is preached from the Bible good for people who love Jesus and walk in his ways and want to live for his glory? The people of God are not afraid of the Bible. 
I don't want to, I'm not afraid to hear that the Bible tells me something in my life needs to change because the greatest thing that's ever happened in any point in my life is that God through his word and through his spirit and through the preaching of his word or from the reading of his Bible has shown me an area in my life that's out of sync with the call to love him or love others and the Holy Spirit changes me and makes me new and there's freedom there. I don't need to hear every day I'm okay because guess what I'm not. I'm not okay. Apart from Jesus, I'm miserable. Apart from Jesus, there's nothing okay about me. And they're saying, just tell everybody it's okay. Just tell everybody it's going to be fine. It will be fine in Jesus. It will be fine when I turn from my sin and I turn to him. He didn't just come to pay the price for my sins. He came to give me life and freedom and to save me. My life is fine when I'm enjoying him more and me less. But they're saying, hey, Micah, chill out, dude. No, 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 don't say that. You're going to ruffle some feathers. You're going to push on it. Don't do that. Um, but lately, my people have risen up as an enemy. What? You mean just telling everybody it's okay instead of telling what the Bible says? What, what do you mean an enemy? Well, yeah, God's not hidden how we're supposed to live. God's not hidden what it looks like to respond to him. God's not hidden from you or from me a righteous life in the gospel of Jesus. But when we say, oh, ugh, I don't know, if I say that, ugh, I don't know what he's going to think about that. I probably shouldn't talk about that one. No one likes that one anymore. You just let people go, and you just let people do. It's all in, like, in, in state of like keeping everything cool and nice. They're just telling Micah to be cool. Just be cool, Micah. Chill out, man. Chill out. It's not loving. You're helping people be enemies. That's what you're helping. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustworthingly with no thought of war. Likely this is referring to people who are re returning, uh, Israelites who are returning from fighting foreign wars, who are beat up and tired and coming home, and these crooks are waiting and pouncing on them and taking their stuff. So this guy goes off and defends your home and defends your family, and he's tired and he's coming back, and you're going to take his coat? Come on! You're a crook. You're a crook crook. The women of my people, you drive out from their delightful houses. They're taking houses from ladies. The young children, you take away my splendor. For They're taking stuff away from kids. Arise and go, for there's, there's, this is no place of rest because the uncleanliness that destroys grievous destruction. God will reckon it. He will vindicate the righteous. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. So what he's getting after is what Paul gets after in the New Testament. There's going to be a time when people assemble for them. Guys are just going to itch their ears. They're going to be guys who just preach and say things that people want to hear. There's at least three, maybe more, ways that we can do preaching, right? Uh, we, can, we can preach life affirmation. You all come in every week, and I just say, you are a delicate snowflake, and tomorrow is going to be awesome because you're awesome, and hey, Life is really, I think, going to turn out really well for everybody all the time. That only works in a developed country, by the way. I'm, I'm serious. No one's, it doesn't, you mean tomorrow when my kids are starving? You're a delicate snowflake. Great. The other thing we preach is life tweaking. People love life tweaking. Where you come in and I give you, I talk for 45 minutes about how you can balance your checkbook. Because really there's nothing fundamentally wrong with my heart or you. Uh, it, it's that you just need some life skills. And if you could just figure out how to balance your checkbook or parenting or your marriage and you get your life skills on straight, 
hey, you're going to maximize your potential in life. Uh, reality is we need life change. We need life change when our lives are exposed to the truth of who Jesus is and the empowering work of his Holy Spirit to be more like his son, to, to, to have our lives driven to a place where we enjoy him more, where we see him clearer. Uh, because really, frankly, we live in a time and a place where people say, hey, hey, you guys need to not take the Bible so seriously. You guys need to chill out. You should just be in the community and being nice to people. And don't take the Bible too seriously. Here's the problem. When I'm not in the community, by that I mean loving my neighbors and loving the church, uh, when I'm not into the walk that I have in Jesus, enjoying him, my problem is I'm not taking the Bible too seriously. My problem is I'm not taking the Bible seriously enough. If I took the Bible seriously enough, I would dedicate my life to living in the wake of the gospel, in the freedom of Jesus, in everything he's made for me, in everything he's paid for me, loving him and loving people until I'm poured out and go home to be with him. Friends, our problem is not that if, if your parenting's jacked up, if you're like, I just, ah, I just, how is it that I keep raising my voice? Where did, why did I just say the thing my dad always, I said I would never, that sounds familiar. That's my mom talking. How did that happen? It's because you need a change. I could show you how to white knuckle parenting and I could try and tell you how to make your kids behave. I could tell you how to be nice to your husband or your wife. I could show you how to, well, I could have my wife show you how to balance a checkbook. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, the reality is, is if your checkbook's balanced, but you're just as greedy as you ever were, you're just as enslaved as you were before you balanced your checkbook. If you still think everything you own belongs to you instead of Jesus, you're just as enslaved as you were when everything was a mess. You just go, go from like spending too much on food to being stingy or something. You just walk from one ditch to the other. I want to be liberated because the more, the more I understand that every stitch of clothing, every morsel on my plate, and every stick in my house all belong to Jesus, and I just kind of feel like this renter type person in my home. Less, I feel like a guest in my home. Like, not even a guest. This is his house, this is his stuff, this is his food. My, my life is marked with thankfulness and freedom. And all of a sudden, Jesus, this is an awesome coffee. Thank you for giving me your coffee because he doesn't need me to make him a sandwich or doesn't need my coffee or whatever. But I want you to be free, right? When you understand that the point of your marriage is to love and serve, not to control, or, or the point of your parenting is not that everyone else would think that your parenting's awesome, right? It's not... It's not at home, it's in the park in front of all the other parents that things get wild, right? The question is, are you after their discipleship and them seeing Jesus or making sure all the other parents at the park know how awesome you are? Is the point of your parenting, your kids know you're awesome? That's tempting. All you want is your kids to know you're awesome so you don't ever say anything to them. You don't ever correct them. You don't ever parent them. But man, they think you're awesome. When I understand the gospel of Jesus... It changes. My life changes, and I realize sometimes my service and my life to my friends or my family makes me and them uncomfortable. But Jesus is better than that. Jesus is better than my uncomfort. Okay. Last, we made it. Two verses. I will surely assemble all of you. What? Here, listen. Listen. What did I just say? 
There's doom coming. Everything's going to go poorly for everything. The Assyrians are coming. Samaria is crushed. Everything's going to go poorly. What did God just say? I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like a sheepfold, like a sheep in the fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. He opens the breach, goes up before them. The breaking through and pass, uh, and they break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. Where'd the doom go? Prophets are weird because it's kind of like getting slapped around. Like you're sitting there, you're getting the doom, and then you get this, the, like, clap, the slap to the face, the, the cold water, the whatever, and you're like, now we're talking about what? What just happened? You're going to gather everybody up and it's going to be awesome? Two chapters of doom, two verses of awesome. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant, those who are faithful. We don't want to be accepted. We want to be faithful. We don't want to be accepted by the world. We want to be accepted by Jesus. We want to be this faithful remnant of Israel. But, but it doesn't just hit Israel. Listen, I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. That sounds like Revelation 7 to me. That sounds like every tribe and every tongue gathered together, a noisy multitude of men. The, the, the reoccurring theme, you see this in Isaiah and Jeremiah, that God's not just going to save Israel. God's going to save the Gentiles who are worshiping pretend gods. And we all kind of say, okay, cool, because the church has been around for 2,000 years. Cool, great. That's you, unless you're, you're from a Jewish background. You've been grafted in to the people of God. He, he's brought us, you and me, into the family of God and into the promises of the Old Testament. That's a really big deal. You don't change classes in the old times. The fact that they would even say that weirds people out when Isaiah says, they're going to come from the nations and they're going to be part of the thing, the thing that is the people of God. That is the church. The church in this era, in the new covenant, in this, we're gathered in from outside. Again, impossible. Impossible, as far as they're concerned. Never forget that Jesus does the impossible. Romans 9 tells us, of course, that there's going to be a gathering of ethnic in Israel at the end. It's not even weird stuff. It's in Romans 9. Now, the Bible's got lots of weird stuff. Romans 9's weird, too. Romans is amazing. And I'm out of time, so I have to stop talking about Romans because we're here in Micah. Um, Surely I will assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant. So he's not going to take just the broken out of Israel. He's going to take the broken from the world. This is God's redeeming power. I met with a cat just Friday. Uh, you can look up his thing. 20 schemes. Scotland, uh, they're called schemes. They're basically projects. Completely unreached people group stuck in their class and massive poverty who've never even heard about Jesus or the Bible. And by the way, they're English speakers. They need to plant churches with outsiders because these dudes have never heard the truth. Don't rent the movie. Don't watch the movie. Don't Netflix the movie. But if you've seen Train Spotting, that's a scheme. Those people are dark and need, in a dark spot and need Jesus, and they need people to go to them and tell them the truth. God is assembling people from there and China and Saudi Arabia and everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. God is taking broken people and making them his own, and he's foretelling this. And so can you imagine being in a state where you're looking around your own country, and you're like, everything's broken. Everybody's broken. Everyone is running from God, and Micah's pretty alone here. And all that, God says, oh, by the way, I'm going to save you all. You all, second verse plural. I'm gonna save all y'all. And by the way, 
I'm not just going to save you guys. I'm going to save the world. I mean, I just try and sit in that spot. But God, everything's broken. I don't even know how we're going to get to tomorrow, let alone saving the world. You need to see that Micah is covered with the gospel of Jesus Christ who saves the world. my place. There we go. Verse 13, he opens the breach. Now, this should really be the breacher, but we don't have a word for the breacher and we don't know what that means. Uh, this isn't just he who opens the breach in the Hebrew. This has got a direct, uh, direct art, uh, 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 at the end of a sermon, it all falls apart. This is a direct, uh, um, forget it, there's a the there, the breacher. The guy. There's one who's going to be the guy who's going to break this thing down. There's going to be someone who breaks through it all. The breacher. The breaker. Right? So the breaker. That sounds cool and like a great name for a mid-80s revival hardcore band. The breaker. Pause tops. The breaker. He who opens the breach. The breaker goes before them. Gospel. Jesus goes before you. He's the forerunner. He came to earth and lived the life you should have lived. This is coming. He's coming, guys. Is what Mike is saying. He's coming, the, the one who breaks through. And so imagine a sheepfold. Uh, I saw some goats this weekend, but it was at like a farm where my kids pet them, so I'm not sure. But it's, apparently there's some kind of gate or something, and this guy's going to break through the gate, okay? And of course it's metaphor. Metaphor breaks down. Some, the breacher's going to go before them, and he breaks through and pass the gate. Jesus comes to break down the dividing uh, between us and him. He comes to break down your sin and make the way out for you from your sin. He comes to do that. So this breaker's going to come and he's going to break through this thing. Break through the pass, past the gate, going out to it. And here, here's what we hear about the breaker. The king passes before them. Okay, so the breaker's the king. And who's at their head? The Lord is at their head. So this breaker is a king who's also God. God is going to come and break through. I, I can't help but think about the temple. The temple has the holiest of holies where the manifest presence of God is in the old administration. Jesus, and he dies on the cross, the curtain tears in two, and we have complete, full, and unfettered access to God. He's going to come, and he's going to rip it in two. He's going to save everybody. This is coming. This is going to happen. It's bona fide. It's as good as done. He opens the breach and goes before them. They break through and pass through the gate, going on by it. Their king passes on before them. The Lord is at their head. And if we have any confusion, Micah 4, 7, after the next cycle of doom that we have to go through, and then into 7 and the good stuff. Uh, and the lame I will make the remnant, and those, so everybody was horrible and messed up, and those who are cast off a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forevermore. The Lord, the king, the breaker, all one. A king who came and was in with the sheep. Okay, check it out. So he's in with the sheep because he's got to break through. So whoever he is, he has to come and be in with the sheep. And he comes and breaks through the thing that keeps them from their right life with God. And he leads them through. And he not only breaks it down, but he goes out through it. And he leads the way. And he's their king. And oh yeah, by the way, he's God. Does that sound like anybody you're familiar with? Does that sound like Jesus to you? It is. What's really great, I was reading a Jewish uh, turn-of-the-century commentator on this, and when they get to a verse like this, they're like, uh, I don't, uh, it could be this, it could be, whatever it is, it's not Jesus. It's not that Christian guy. I know it sounds a lot like the Christian guy, and I, I know it sounds like it supports the argument, but it's not that at all. Uh, I'm not sure what it is, but don't, it's not that. Maybe it is. 
Okay, I'm out of time, so I'll close with this. So two chapters of doom, two verses of hope. But how much do these two verses of Jesus Christ who's going to enter into human history, come among us, break through, and save us to this life that we get in him? How much weightier is that than the incurable? Because it's curable all of a sudden in the miracle of God. When we begin to meditate on these two verses, see how they displace those two, oh no, it's all going to go horrible, and God's going to come and restore. Uh, Six things I think we need to see from these two verses. Jesus will assemble a people. You and me. He's going to save us to this people, the one church. Now, we meet in different places. Green Lake Prez down the hill, Rock of Ages over there. People all over the world, all over, you know, everywhere. But he's gathering us. The end game is not we all have, we don't all show up and then stay just on this one team for eternity. And by the way, this isn't the only church that's going to be in eternity. The church will be there and will be there with everybody and every tribe and every tongue. And he's going to assemble us, the church, Big C Church from the nations. Jesus will make the breach, not you. Rest. Jesus is the one who gives us access to God. Jesus is the one who forgives us. Jesus is the one who saves us. Jesus is the one who moves to make us his own. He's going to open the breach. But not only that, Jesus leads the way. He doesn't just open the gate and say, figure it out. That's our default mode. Well, Jesus paid the price for us, but I've got to figure everything else out. Not only does Jesus open the gate, he says, come on, this way, this way. And he leads us and he guides us and he, as the church, we're given new hearts and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to empower us to follow Jesus and see Jesus. You're not left alone. Jesus sets us free. The life we have in Jesus is not about changing one kind of uh, obligation, rule, or slavery for another. Jesus saves us from ourselves to life in him and in glory forever. Jesus is our king. I'm a bad king. When I'm trying to run my life, Things go poorly, they go selfish, they go bad. When my life is about listening to God and listening to Jesus and believing his word, it turns out, not that it's life coaching, but that God actually loves you and wants your life to go well. And Jesus actually showed you how to live. But not only that, Jesus is our God. We don't need the ways of the world. We don't need a compromise. We don't need idolatry. We don't need a well, I'll usually follow God, but sometimes I'll just slip this tax thing under the rug or whatever it may be. God's good all the time. We could trust Jesus all the time, all the time, all the time. He's the king. I don't have to try and control my circumstances. I don't have to try and control things. I can trust in Jesus all the time. And by the way, that is very liberating. When we don't believe these things, we try and rescue ourselves. We try and be our own king. We build our own self-salvation projects. We find, try and build our own towers of Babel trying to get to God, and we try and run our own lives. We either while out or we do false religion, right? When I'm the king, it's keg stands. When I'm trying to save myself, uh, it's giving people coats so God will like me more. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. When you're giving somebody a coat so that God will like you, you didn't give them a coat. You gave yourself the coat. The good news is here, you can't give them the coat as a free response to who Jesus is. And you don't have to try and be the king. And you don't have to try and control. And you don't have to find joy from something else. You can find joy from Jesus. If you're a Christian, this means you have been saved, you are saved, you are being saved, and Jesus has paved the way for you. Rest in it. If you're not a Christian, if you don't know him, this means the more we try and save ourselves, or the more we try and be the king in our own life, the more tired and a wreck it becomes. 
And I got a room full of people who will tell you so. He'll save you from yourself. He'll save you now. He'll liberate you. He'll give you freedom. He'll give you life. He'll unite you with your actual purpose, and that's knowing him forever. It's the good news of Micah. Good news of Jesus from Micah. Let's pray. King Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace, for your mercy. I'm a horrible king. I don't want to be king. I want you to be king. Every project I've ever cooked up to save myself, to white-knuckle something, has failed. But you're good. God, help us to try and stop earning your love. Help us to wade into your love and to respond to your love and know your love and walk in your grace and your mercy. Jesus, you've loved us. Help us just to be loved people. Help break our addictions or our control or our self-salvation strategies by just stopping and pausing and knowing how much you've loved us first and we did nothing to earn it. Please fill us with your spirit and help us to see you for who you are. Jesus, we love you and pray these things in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.